There was this farmer, rich farmer, and his farm produced big crop, bumper crop, bigger than any crop he'd harvested before. So big, in fact, he had nowhere to really store it. So this farmer came up with a two-stage plan. Stage one, tear down the old barns, build bigger ones where he could store all the grain. Stage two, enjoy. He looked forward to being able to say to himself, you've stored up enough good things to last for years to come. Live it up. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. This farm, you see, was living the great Australian dream, the dream most of us, I think, aspire to. Until into this dream crashed the living God who said to him, you fool. Tonight you will die, then who will get what you have stored up? The dream becomes a nightmare, paradise becomes hell. Now that's the, that's the disturbing story that Jesus told as a warning against greed. A warning against putting your hope in wealth and possessions. A warning that every single one of us needs to hear and heed. Jesus says to us today, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And that's our goal today, to consider greed so as to be on guard against it. Although we're not going to call it greed, we're going to use a more potent Bible word. We're going to use the word idolatry. Today is a call to be on guard against idolatry. So make sure you have your uh, outline there on the inside of the bulletin. It'd be great to have your Bible open at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let me pray for us before we proceed. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as people who desperately need your help. Our hearts trick us, Father, when it comes to wealth and money. And Father, we're so easily fooled. And we don't want to be like the rich farmer in Jesus' story. And so, Father, we ask now as we come before you and meet with you in your word that you'd confront us where we need to be confronted and comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, we want to be your people. We want to seek your blessing. And please help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time we were in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to be there every time, really. And uh, let me remind you of where we were last week. Our key verse from last time was verse 17. Let me read it for us. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In that verse, the Apostle Paul recognizes that rich Christians are faced with two options. And folks, we are rich Christians. If you're here this morning and you're Christian, then you're rich. If you don't think you're rich, then you need to check out one of those tier catalogues down the back and compare yourself with any of those people and you'll discover that you are truly rich. And as rich, as rich Christians, we are faced, according to the Apostle Paul, with two options. Two options about where we will put our hope. 
The only sensible option is what Paul commands here in these verses, to put our hope in God. But the other option is to put our hope in our wealth, in our money, in our possessions. Where is your hope? Where does your confidence in life lie? In your wealth or in God? Stark choice. No middle ground. Money or God? And because of that stark choice, it's why on at least two other occasions the Apostle Paul identifies greed as idolatry. So, for example, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, which is on your outline, we can read this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Let me tell you, in the Bible, there is no more serious sin than idolatry. If nothing, idolatry is uh, the sin behind and beneath every other sin. There's nothing as disastrous or even as disgusting as abandoning the one true God in order to give your loyalty and love of them something less than God. And so the Bible directs its most potent language against the sin of idolatry. And in the New Testament, greed equals idolatry. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, we can see why. Because money and possessions are rivals for our hope. Rather than putting our hope in God, the God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, the God of blessing like we saw last time, rather than putting our hope in him, we are in constant danger of putting our hope in our wealth, in our possessions. We think that they will be our security. We think they will be what can save us. We doubt, you see, God's ability to completely bless us. We doubt God's willingness to bless us. And so we seek extra blessing somewhere else. And so often that somewhere else is our stuff, our money, our possessions. Folks, let me tell you, we are in constant danger of idolatry. And I reckon we should use the word idolatry rather than greed because of its potency. See, greed doesn't really mean that much these days. You know, that kid's greedy because he ate too much birthday cake at the party. If someone, to accuse us, if someone were to accuse us of being greedy, we, I reckon we could shake that off pretty quickly. But to be accused of idolatry, that's got more of a sting. And the word idolatry, of course, even reminds us of our treatment of God. To be greedy means you want too much, more than your fair share. To be an idolater means that you've turned away from the true and living God and you've given your heart and mind to something other than God. Greed is idolatry and idolatry is despicable. It's horrible. And we can see the horror of such idolatry a little earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So come back with me to verse 9. Verse 9, let me read it. Verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Notice, please, firstly, Paul's description of idolaters. They are people who want to get rich. They are people who love money. They are people who are eager for money. And really important, folks, that we pause and give ourselves the opportunity to see if that description fits me or you. Do you want to get rich? Do you envy rich people? Are you the sort of person who's always interested in what someone else earns? Do you sort of even subconsciously rank people according to their wealth? Rich people more important than less rich people. Do you want to get rich? If somehow mysteriously I could make you rich this moment, would you take me up on it? Do you love money? I'm not sure many of us would answer yes to that out loud, but is money the big thing in your life? Do you catch yourself daydreaming about money? Does money thrill you? Does, make money, does making money drive your decision-making? Are you eager for money? Gambling, of course, is the terrible vice that feeds on people's eagerness for money. Just one more scratchy, and maybe that'll be the big one. One more coin in the slot, one more bet. My friend gained more from quitting scratchies than she ever made from buying them. But gambling thrives on an eagerness for money. It is addictive, it is based on fantasy, and it ruins lives and families. And pathetically, of course, our governments, our society are structured around gambling. Our governments rely on the revenue that flows from gambling. So much so that they are now so indebted to gambling that they cannot address it as the social evil that it is. At the heart of gambling is greed. It is wanting something for nothing. Are you eager for money? What would you do to get more? It's really important we own up to idolatry. It needs to be named and claimed. Because look at the consequences of idolatry the Apostle spells out in these verses. Verses 9, 10, 9 and 10. Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Verse 10 again, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We need to read verses 9 and 10. And that's horrible. Idolatry is horrible with horrible consequences. Your desire to get rich, your eagerness for money, may well lead you to destruction. These verses, I'm reading these verses, I'm reminded of the young um, fellow who came to Jesus with such eagerness. You might remember the encounter in Mark chapter 10. You can have a look at it later, Mark chapter 10. This guy ran up to Jesus, super keen, fell on his knees before Jesus and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was a very religious man. He claimed to have kept all the commandments and he was a rich man and his riches had claimed his heart. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and spoke to him, one thing you lack, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And on hearing Jesus' loving reply, his face fell, and we're told that he went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Jesus called on him, you see, to not put his hope in wealth, but in him, in Jesus. And he couldn't do it. And I don't know what happened to that fellow later. We're not told in the Bible. But let me tell you, if he never repented of that decision, he walked away from Jesus into destruction. Folks, make no mistake. When it comes to your wealth, you are in a perilous position. You are in danger. It is so easy to fall into temptation. It's so easy to put your confidence in your wealth rather than in God, in the gifts rather than in the giver. And that choice can plunge you into ruin and destruction forever. For me, one of the most scary stories that Jesus ever told was the one, famous one really, about the farmer sowing seed into four different types of soil. The seed of the farmer, Jesus tells us, represents the word of God and the soils soils represent the people who hear it. It's the story from Mark chapter 4. Farmer goes out to sow seed. As he scattered the seed, some fell on a path and birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and so the plants grew up real quick, but they couldn't establish their roots, and so as soon as the sun came out, they were scorched and they withered and they died. Other seed, though, fell on good soil, rich soil, and those plants produced a bumper harvest. But there was another soil that Jesus described, the scary one. Jesus said this other soil contained thorns, weeds. So when the seed was planted in this soil, the, the seeds, the plants grew up okay, but so did the thorn, thorny weeds around them. And eventually, over time, the thorns choked the plants, starved them of life. And according to Jesus, what did those weeds represent? The worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. They are the thorny weeds, according to Jesus, that choke the gospel, choke the word of life to death in people. And such a death happens slowly, gradually. The plants and the weeds grow up together and everything looks sort of fine. But as time goes on, the weeds become stronger the plant becomes weaker, the weeds become dominant, and slowly but surely the plants wither up and die. Friends, wealth is deceitful. It promises so much, but it can deliver death. It can deliver destruction. This is the Christian in youth group so keen. Love's coming to mob. Love's going to youth group. Zealous for Jesus, zealous for his word. He grows up, he leaves school, he gets a job and begins to earn money, accumulates wealth, saves money, not deliberately really much at first, it just happens. And then he comes to value his possessions. He owns a real nice house. He has a wife and a family and rightly he wants to provide for them. And so he works hard and he works long for them. He wants to save for the kids' education. He wants them not to miss out on anything. So when overtime is offered, he'd be crazy to knock it back. When the promotion comes along, it's received with gratitude. 
The hours are longer, sure, the responsibility greater, greater, but look at the benefit. And all along, he still goes to church. Although if you had eyes to see, you'd notice a softening of his zeal. It's been a while since he was serious about praying and reading the Bible when he's on his own. Never happens really. Been a while since he talked about Jesus with the passion and the excitement that he used to. But hey, he's just older. He's got more responsibility now. And the extension on the house, that takes time and energy. And with the kids going to university now, the, the pressure's even greater to provide. And can you see it? All the while, the weeds are growing, barely noticeable at first so innocent looking and yet all the while they are sapping the very life out of him so that at some point without ever really noticing it the word of life the word of Jesus the word of true blessing choked out nothing left verse 9 people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. So friends, what weeds are present in your life now? I wonder if even now as you sit there, even in church, you are being choked to death. See, God doesn't muck around with us, does he, when it comes to these things? He is kind, he loves us, he tells it straight. And so we've got to stop mucking around with these things as well. It's time to do some serious weeding in your personal garden. My boys and I have planted a veggie garden in the backyard and we're trying to weed as weeds are persistent. Not more so than the weeds Jesus was talking about. It's time to put greed and idolatry to death. Point two on your outline. Listen to the Apostle's words in chapter 6 there, 1 Timothy and verse, verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses now if you notice there there's actually lots of action words in those three verses flee pursue fight take hold it's always that way of course when we battle sin lots of action but i want us to notice first however that paul calls on timothy to battle with the confidence of someone who has been called to eternal life, in verse 12. The, the most important action of all is the one that God has already done. He has called Timothy, he has called us to eternal life if we belong to Jesus. See, we flee, we pursue, we fight, we take hold, all by the power of the Spirit who has renewed our hearts, who has washed us, justified us, set us apart for God. See, this is the good news if you're Christian. The desire of idolatry, the desire of greed, it no longer enslaves you. In Christ, by his grace, you have been set free to serve him and to seek his blessing. 
That's a terrific truth. We are not powerless, you see, to put greed and idolatry to death. Sometimes we can feel powerless, but we're not. But we need to take action. We need to fight the good fight of the faith, verse 12. And in our fight to put idolatry to death, we need to recognise the deceitfulness of wealth in our own life. Because we should expect, according to Jesus, we should expect to have a blind spot, a really big blind spot when it comes to greed and idolatry in our own life. We should expect that we would think that everything is okay when it's not. That's what wealth is like. It's deceitful and we're easy targets. So we need to be hard in our assessment of ourselves. And, you know, I think, I would think the easiest way to assess your level of greed is to work out how much money you give away. The easiest way to assess your level of greed is to work out how much money you give away. Because if a greedy person loves money, is eager for money, then they hold onto their money with tightly clenched hands. So therefore the non-greedy person is the person who does not love money, who's not eager for money and so has a much looser grip on their money and in fact is open-handed, is generous with their money. That's why later in verse 18, we looked at it last time, the apostle has this command for rich Christians in Ephesus, verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. The best weed zapper for greed is generosity. And we're going to return to generosity in a couple of weeks' time. But for now, can I ask you, how much money do you give away? Would you be described as open-handed with your wealth? And when you give money away, do you give out of what you don't need or out of what you do need? Are you generous to the point of it costing you? Do you decide how much to give away on the basis of how much you want to give or how much you want to keep? If you compare the amount of money that you give away to the amount that you spend on takeaway food, would you be embarrassed if we knew? Would you be embarrassed if Jesus knew? Of course he does. In the last seven days, could you give me an example of you being open-handed with your wealth? I'm not meaning to make you feel guilty, but like me, you need to break through the deceitfulness of your wealth. And if you have even the slightest suspicion that maybe you struggle with greedy idolatry, then I urge you tomorrow, not sometime soon, tomorrow, have a go at giving a whole lot of money away to a mission organisation, to a relief fund, to a person in gospel work, to someone in need, to DPC, tomorrow. Give a whole lot of money away. And if you can't, or if already you are thinking of all the reasons why you can't, then perhaps your suspicions are correct and you are in great danger. Brothers and sisters, we need to come before our gracious Heavenly Father and ask him to change our hearts. We need to ask him to conform the way we think of these things to how he thinks about them and his son. 
Because the reality is we are so clever at rationalising our greed, excusing it and disguising it. We have cute phrases like retail therapy to disguise our materialism. We know who to compare ourselves to so as to make ourselves look less greedy and feel a bit better about it. We make, we make our greed seem more noble when we say things like, well, it's for the kids. Just want what's best for them. We make our greed seem sensible when we say things like, yeah, it's more expensive, but it will last longer. We live in a consumerist society. We are bombarded on all sides by advertisers who appeal unambiguously to our greed. And it works. It's why they do it. And every time you see their ad, the question, the, the statement, the wonder that they want you to be posing for yourself is, gee, if only I had that, my life would be better. I really need that to make my life better. And it's ridiculous, really, when you say it out loud. I mean, a retro-style pop-up toaster is not going to save me. A new outfit from Suzanne is not going to fulfil me. It's certainly not going to fulfil me. <laughs> a big telly won't satisfy me. There is no lasting blessing to be gained from a cordless drill. It's ridiculous when you say it like that, but you know if you search your heart the temptation is oh so real. Unless we confront it actively, we will inevitably drift into idolatry. We will put our hope in things rather than God. So we need to handle the junk mail that's being crammed into our letterboxes now. We need to handle that like poison with great suspicion and caution. We should pray before we read it. We should hold it in our hands and before we even start to flick through it, we should remind ourselves, I'm about to be tempted to put my hope in something other than God that will not and cannot satisfy me. We need to recognise with that junk mail in our hand, here is an opportunity for me to be drift to drift into idolatry and I need to resist it. But of course, active resistance to idolatry is more than just how we handle junk mail, isn't it? It should be seen in our lifestyle. And I reckon, you know, one of the key areas in which we fall for the deceit of wealth is this sort of thinking. We assume, without even really thinking about it, we just assume that our lifestyle should be governed by our salary. A $50,000 salary should be matched by a $50,000 lifestyle. An $80,000 salary should be matched by an $80,000 lifestyle. And so when you get that promotion, when your salary increases, you spend more because you have more to spend. And so you upgrade to the bigger house. You get the new car, the new computer, the whatever, the whatever. You can, and so you do. But our lifestyle shouldn't be governed by our salary. It should be governed by the gospel of Jesus. According to verse 11, by righteousness, godliness, faith and love. And so surely an increase in salary or a financial windfall or a nice tax return should surely, should surely be, first of all, an opportunity for increased generosity. We should do good. We should be rich in good deeds. We should be generous and willing to share. Money should not be what determines our spending pattern. 
our saving patterns. The gospel of Jesus should determine those things. You know, there is a real sense in which we could have salaries in this church family that would vary by tens of thousands of dollars, but surely our lifestyle should be the same. In fact, you know what? It should never be, never be, without any fine print, it should never be our primary goal in any activity to make money. It should never be our primary goal, our end goal, our biggest goal in any activity to make money. Because that's just self-centered greed. That leads to great temptation and destruction. We should always have another goal, a more important goal, beyond just making money. And surely that goal should be to serve God and serve other people. See, if the main reason you take that job take the promotion, is money, if that's the end goal, it's terrible, disastrous, idolatrous. Brothers and sisters, we are not to put our hope in wealth because wealth and affluence is so uncertain. And we know that deep down, but we fall for it every time. Instead, we are to put our hope in God, who is in charge of our future and it will supply us our needs and will bring us abundant blessing. And it's that truth that leads us on to our final and most significant strategy in putting idolatry and greed to death. It is the faithfulness of the Lord God displayed in the gospel of Jesus. Let me say that our greed is driven by fear. The fear that we won't have enough the fear that our needs will not be satisfied, the fear that we lack things of significance. Our greed is driven by fear. And we need to answer that fear, those fears, with the gospel of Jesus. That's why we started where we did last week, with the promise of blessing from God. Because, you see, unless we believe that promise, we will ever be searching for blessing somewhere else. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be continually rekindling our delight in the truth that in Jesus we have everything that we need. We need to remind ourselves of the truth that we have been called to eternal life, the life that is truly life. And that's why we need the gospel. We need brothers and sisters to hold up the gospel before us, to speak it to us, to live it out with us, to sing it with us, to read it with us, to rebuke us with it, to pray it with us. We need the gospel. For in the gospel, the beauty and the sufficiency and the splendor and the grace of Jesus is portrayed. Last week we heard Jesus and his gospel promise. In John 6, he says this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. When you hear that promise and you believe it, that is like a soothing balm. When you hear that promise and you believe it, my spirit-given love for Jesus is rekindled and I'm empowered to put idolatry and greed to death. We need to remind each other of the excellencies of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus. We need to remind each other of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, 
so that you through his poverty might become rich. If we believe that, we will no longer fear the things that make us greedy. If you belong to Jesus, you are abundantly rich. So take hold of the life that is truly life. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's look full in his wonderful face. Because you know what happens when you do that? When you look in his wonderful face that is displayed so clearly in the gospel, well then the things of this world, which so often are so tempting, yet so uncertain and so unsatisfying, the things of this world, they fade. They grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's put idolatry to death. Let's trust in the Lord Jesus. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we are sorry for our foolishness. We're sorry, Father, for being deceived so easily by our wealth. We're sorry, Father, for preferring your gifts to you, the giver of those gifts. We're sorry, Father, for wanting so little, being satisfied with so little when you offer so much. Father, we are sorry for times in which we've drifted into idolatry. We are so grateful, Father, for the Lord Jesus and his grace. So grateful, Father, that though he was so rich, he became poor for us on the cross and bore the curse that is ours so that in him we might become truly rich. Father, help us to repent of the things we need to repent of. Help us to seek first your kingdom. Help us to pursue righteousness, faith and love. It's in Jesus' wonderful, gracious name we pray. Amen.